You're listening to an all-new episode of Self-Made Strategies. Visit selfmadestrategies.com for new episodes, information about our guests, and a whole lot more. Welcome to episode 125 of the Self-Made Strategies podcast. On this episode, we sat down with Paul Attaway. Paul is a former attorney reformed into entrepreneurship. He's recently retired from a 35-year career as an entrepreneur. On this episode, Paul's going to talk to us about life as an entrepreneur and some of the best practices you can use to ready your business for potential investment. You'll hear us talking about cash flow, investments under and over $5 million, and a lot of other topics that are going to resonate with the entrepreneurs in our audience. Here are the self-made strategies of Paul Attaway. I was a lawyer for two years, seemed like 10. I think I billed three. <laughs> I'm sorry uh, to hear that because I'm a lawyer as well. So <laughs> Yeah, yeah, one day at a time. Um, so I did the lawyer thing for a while, really didn't take, but I, 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 uh, I've never regretted going to law school, learned a great deal, and it certainly benefited me throughout the rest of my career. And then I embarked on a 25-plus year career as an entrepreneur, small businessman, Started and sold several companies, um, became a consultant for a time period, and uh, then became an author a few years ago. And um, over the last several years, my wife and I, we sold our house in Phoenix. We relocated to Charleston, and so this is where we live. That's, that's a, a great story. And so life after lawyering can be okay, is what you're saying. Yes, there is hope. I think the one <laughs> thing I missed was 24-7 word processing. Ah, yes. Um, Paper pushing is a major part of the gig, right? Yes, it was. So uh, that was hard to let go of when I had to, you know, type my own, my own stuff. Uh, but by and large, as I said, um, the, the education I benefited from continue to, but the actual practice of the law, um, I didn't enjoy. Um, if I had to go back and do it again, I think I would have tried to become either a tax attorney or a patent attorney because you're, you're building wealth, you're creating wealth, as opposed to anything that all that is contentious, um, just seems to grind you into the dirt. I don't know well, how people can make a career of it. Yeah, you know, I couldn't agree with you more. I know we're going a little bit off topic here, but uh, it's funny because I have my LLM in tax and I am a tax attorney. And I, also, really? I don't practice in patents, but I do practice on the IP side with trademarks, copyrights, trade secret protections. And uh, largely now with the NFT space, the non-fungible token space starting to spin up, I've had a few clients reach out to me about getting involved in that. And I'm really excited to get into that space. Largely, I work with entrepreneurs on the transactional side, right. and I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, I do not understand why. Uh, I don't understand the type of person that likes to go into litigation and that enjoys that yeah. level of of uh, pedantry and conflict is the best way that I can describe Absolutely. it. Let's talk about your best practices for overcoming the challenges associated with running a startup. And, you know, you've worked as an attorney, so you've been in business as well. And we'll talk a little bit about that and then how you transitioned into becoming an author and how much better your life has become because of that. Sure. Um, good grief. Best practices as an entrepreneur. Um, you know, I, I think at the end of the day, it, it depends upon where you are, even in that stage. Um, so looking back, I can look at the things I did well and the things that um, I wish I had done differently. Um, 
The one thing that I think is absolutely critical is to not overestimate your abilities. And, and I'm not saying that confidence is a wonderful thing and all entrepreneurs have more confidence than they really should have because they look at something and they go, I can do that. Yeah. But the reality is, is um, uh, you know, Warren Buffett and Bill Gates couldn't build a successful company selling buggy whips because there's no market for buggy whips. So I say one of the really important things is understanding your market understanding what is really doable and spending the extra time um, uh, assessing who your customer is and, and what you need to do to get that customer's attention, whether you're selling a product or a service. And then when you put together your assumptions and you estimate the time you will need and the money you're going to need, take both of those and multiply them by two to three. And that's how long it's going to take you to actually get there. Yeah, um, I think that's that's great advice because often you're right, entrepreneurs are really ambitious, which is the awesome part of entrepreneurship and of being around entrepreneurs for those of us who like that sort of thing. Right. But at the same time, often take on everything, right? And they say, Correct. I'm going to swab the deck, navigate, read the maps, point the ship in the right direction, you know, open up the sails, manage the wind, do it all. And often that's a, a recipe for disaster because Absolutely. you quickly discover that when you're wearing the hat of employee, innovator, employer, uh, doer, uh, big thinker, vision, visionary, those people tend to get into conflict if they're all in one human body, right? Absolutely. Um, I think you, know, it, you, you also run to the, 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 the other problem is the ability to see both the forest and the trees. Um, you get involved in the day-to-day -day and you are grinding away on the day-to-day. -day. Now, at some point you sat down and you came up with your plan. You call it a business plan, whatever it might be. And so you've got the big picture where you want to be. And then you, you, know, you set goals and then this is what I need to do. So you, you get so in the weeds at times, it's difficult to find out if you're headed in the right direction or if you need to change course. Um, I'm in the fortunate position today um, where you know, I, 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 um, uh, I serve on a board of advisor or two, and I think one of the real benefits that we can provide as the advisors is it gives the operator a time and a place to step out and reassess where they're going because you get so into the minutiae, you don't see if the market is telling you, you need to do something different. And so when you're talking to somebody who's not in the minutia, who's not experiencing either, you know, the frustrations of this or the euphoria of that, uh, stepping out, you know, going away to a different, you know, a different building and setting aside that time and having someone challenge your assumptions, uh, it gives you the, it, it can help uh, either, lead you to the point where you have to change course uh, or, or keep going. Um, and, and so that, what you said about being all things to all people, you get in, you lose that perspective. Yeah, it, it really does cloud your mind, right? You're unable to think clearly because you just have way too much going on. Now, let's talk a little bit about your life as an entrepreneur. One, you started 
eventually hung your own shingle, as they say in the trade, right? Right. Uh, were out on your own as an attorney. Now, were you always a solo practice? Did you grow into multiple oh, no. partners? I, I, I apologize. I must. I'm, I um, I was an attorney for two years, uh, but I was for um, a large firm in Phoenix. What was a large firm by Phoenix standards in the late '80s. Um, and after a couple of years of that, I decided that I needed to get into the business world. And um, so I began looking for businesses for sale. And of course, in 1989, 1990, there was no internet. Uh, you would go to the Sunday newspaper and you would open it up for the classifieds for businesses for sale, or you'd go to a, a, a business broker. Uh, I'm talking about me, you know, not right, a lot of cash. Right. Right. And so I, I went through and I, I found a company that I thought looked promising. All I had to do was take over debt. Um, that was a sign right there. The guy was in trouble. Um, <laughs> but I, uh, I sent it to my father, who had been a, a successful small businessman. And he looked at the financials and he said, what's going on? I go, Dad, I'm, I'm miserable as an attorney. And he said, well, I paid for law school. What's going on? And I said, I, I can't do this. I cannot do this for my whole life. And he said, well why don't you come work for me? So I worked for my dad for five years and he manufactured commercial building products, um, engineer, Georgia Tech grad. Um, so I was living in, in Phoenix. My dad's business was in Tucker, Georgia. So I'd spent one week out of every month back there. I opened up a shop for him in Phoenix and I learned from the ground up um, how to run all the sheet metal equipment, how to do takeoffs on commercial, uh, on, on blueprints, how to quote jobs, how to manage sales reps. Did that for five years. And it was, I mean, it was an unbelievably uh, great education. Um, but I had the itch to go out on my own. And so I went out on my own in 96. I met a very smart man, uh, certified smart guy, and he had a lot of patents, ideas and such. And we proceeded to start a couple of companies um, in construction and in semiconductor uh, microelectronics industries. So that was uh, that was beginning in '96. Very cool. Now, first of all, I just want to say I think it's a cool backstory because you were an early disruptor before being a disruptor was really <laughs> a buzzword, right? In the '80s, you were looking for a a business to get involved in, super entrepreneurial, yep. and then you know couldn't really find the right fit. You tried to find one that would be okay for you to buy into and you and finding a unique way because i think in today's world doing what you were doing in the 80s looking for a business to buy and then kind of finding either the cash support or the investors or a way to take over a business there are there are a plethora of tools and opportunities out there for people who want it bad enough so to speak absolutely absolutely but then then the really cool and important lesson that people should take away from this, I think, as a big ticket, you know, what's the one thing to focus on, I think, is this, is that you went into your father's business and immediately got into the weeds, so to speak, of learning a little bit about each part of the business so that you could manage it more effectively, which I, I think is really the missing key, right, for a lot of entrepreneurs is you can get into a space that you virtually know nothing about. Richard Branson- yeah most famously talks about that all the time as do do some other you know famous entrepreneurs but i think the missing key is you can get into spaces that you may not know anything about when you're coming into it but you do need to make some effort to learn about maybe not literally 100% expert level how to 
you know, manage engineering audio, for example, if you're going to go into a podcast or video and audio production. But you do, do need to know at least enough about it so that you can effectively steer the ship, right? Yeah, I think that's it, an, an interesting point. If you, you take the Bransons of the world, um, if you're, I think if you get into a large company, let's say you've got the means, you're part of a private equity group, whatever, you have the means to come in and buy into a large company. I think you're managing people more so at that level. When you come in at a very tiny company or you're starting the company or you're getting in, you've got three employees, you'd better know how to do everything. Um, and you do have to know the products. You do know have, have to know how the equipment works or you know, whatever it is that you're doing. And I do remember making sales calls and I'm calling on architects and talking them into specifying our products on their next school or hospital they're building. And I would field questions from the architects. And I remember them being very complimentary of my product knowledge. And I credit that to the fact that my dad said, well, I'm not going to let you hire a welder until you learn how to weld yourself. So I knew how to run the press brakes and the shears. Um, we made standing seam metal roofs and metal edge treatments and expansion joint systems for buildings and parking decks. And I knew how to operate all the equipment um, and do takeoffs, et cetera. And I finally came to my dad and said, okay, dad, I know how to weld. I am a lousy welder. I can do the other <laughs> stuff. I am a lousy welder. And I'm afraid we're going to get a phone call on the, on, the, uh, on the shipment we just put on the truck the other day. And he goes, that's fine. Now you know what to look for when you go hire a welder. And so I hire a welder and I knew good work when I saw it. So I think a lot of it depends on the size of the business. I have friends of mine that, that have only operated in large businesses. Their experiences are totally different. They're dealing with politics. They're dealing with more finance issues. They're dealing with being a public company. They're managing people. Smaller companies, you, you end up knowing everything. It's a challenge. But I, I, I see your point. But I, I do think that it's important in general for those who are considering entrepreneurship to just be a voracious learner, right? Absolutely. You need to want to face struggle head on <laughs> and figure out and tinker and learn and say, you know, this hurdle has been put in my way and I'm going to find a way through it, over it, under it, around it. I'm yep. going to find a way to the other side, no matter what it takes within legal means, of course, lawyer of course. brains flickering right. a little bit, yep. but, but I'm going to find a way to overcome this problem. I'm going to find a way to not only do that, but then once I do overcome it, to pass it on to others in an efficient way and to be able to scale it, which is the next step, right? Yep. Persistence is, a, is an absolute essential characteristic of an entrepreneur. If, if, if you have an ounce of give up in you, um, you'll be looking for a job soon. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. I, I frequently talk to people and now I'm, I'm, anyone who knows me is I'm Mr. Irons in the fire, lots of ideas, lots of stuff swirling in my brain. I've gotten better at managing and just saying, all right, I'm going to put this in the, on the idea list. We talked about that a couple episodes uh, with Sarah from So Productive on, on this show, creating an idea list so that we can offload yeah. those ideas and come back to them when we have more capacity. But at the same time, you're, you're right. I talk to people all the time who I think would make great entrepreneurs. And sometimes you quickly realize that they're too risk averse, too, too tentative about diving into the double Dutch ropes, you know, head or feet first or whatever it takes. Yeah. 
And that's a bad recipe, right? Yeah, no, it's interesting. No, you're absolutely right. And it takes all kinds. Um, uh, one of the later iterations of my career, um, I ran a, a private lending operation. So I've had the benefit of, of um, you know, studying capital stacks and understanding the different mindsets between the equity people and the dead people. And dead people always focus on the risk and everything that can go wrong. And people that are enamored with equity go, no, 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 no. That's no big deal. We'll deal with it later. We'll be just fine. <laughs> and there's That's a good great. balance between the equity and the debt side. So let's let's talk about that a little bit because I think that's where a lot of people, especially you know mid level, they're trying to get to the next step. That's where they get mixed up. So what is the right balance between sort of the debt and equity structure? Right, you don't want to be too bootstrapped so much that you don't have the cash. If yeah. you're if you're ultra bootstrapped, you're only as good as your cash flow at the end of the day, right? Yep. Or or as much as your team is willing to kind of go the extra mile for you without saying, hey, I need more money for this, for example, you're resource limited, right? You're, you're limited by your resources and that's your capacity. So you do sometimes need to dip your toe into other opportunities for investment or loans or, or whatever it, the case may be. What, what for you is the right balance and how do we strike that balance effectively? Um, well, of course, you know, there's, um, I'll leave real estate aside because in the world of real estate, if you're buying a building, there's some pretty understood parameters you need, you know, and, and, and frankly, in the world of real estate, the lenders will tell you how much equity you have to have, uh, when they're feeling good, they'll let you get by with, you know, 55 to 60% equity when they're not feeling so good, they're going to want 80% equity. Uh, so in the real estate world where they're lending against hard collateral, the lenders, Rules for you, um, but in the sorry, non real uh, estate sorry, world, sorry, I apologize. Yeah. You cut out there for sure. a second. In the real estate world, if you could just start with yeah, in the real, in the real estate world, the lenders are going to tell you what the proper balance is between debt and equity. If you're looking at buying a particular building, and it's in a, you know in the, in the markets are growing, and the lenders are hungry, and they're not quite risk averse, they'll let you come in with you know. 55, 60% equity, and they'll provide, you know, uh, the underlying debt, maybe a little mezzanine debt. If the, if the credit's getting tight, the lenders are going to tell you, no, we want to see 75 to 80% uh, equity and we'll lend the last 25%. So real estate, it's my opinion that the lenders basically write the rules on how much equity you need. Now, go outside of real estate into the world of entrepreneurship, you're creating a product or service. Um, now this is, um, it's fascinating and it's been said before, it's harder to raise less than $5 million than it is to raise more than $5 million. And when you are raising, um, I'll say three to $5 million or less, regardless of whether or not you structure it as equity, your lenders are going to act like I'm sorry, your investors are going to act like lenders. They're going to focus on cash flow, focus on cash flow. And that's okay. That's okay. Because if you're that small and you were really trying to you know, grow your company, you've got to have a proof of concept or proof that you can find the customers and you really do need to manage cash. Now, once you start to raise larger sums of money, Ideally, you're going after a, a bigger pie. You're looking at a larger market. You're going to find a more patient investor, and they will look at their investment more in terms of equity, 
and they will tolerate losses for a longer period of time. So I really look at it in terms of loss aversion. When you're talking to investors and you're very small, you need to be able to tell them, really, what's the worst case scenario here? If, if everything goes wrong, what's our worst case scenario? And that's um, those sort of honest conversations with investors have been what has um, um, helped me to establish trust with investors. And then if you have to come back and ask for more money, it's a lot easier if you've established that relationship. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I think the interesting thing there that you pointed out about the the five million mark being sort of that mark where it's either above five million, it's going to be a lot easier for you to raise money, and then below five million, people are going to be very focused on your cash flow, your proof of concept, all of those things. Your go to market strategy, if you will, is that because do you think that's also in part because if you're looking for more than five million, you most likely have already found a few investors. People have yeah. already dipped their toes. So now there's that sort of, you know, FOMO, for lack of right. a better term, kind of concept. So, yeah, yeah, you make a good point. If you're raising more than $5 million, there's a very good chance you've already raised your, your family and friends round of money. You've already proven concept. And now you are at the point of scaling. Uh, and it's a lower bar to clear. So you're absolutely right, Mix. Yeah, yeah. so those, the, fr- the family and friends round, um, often they're, they're investing in you. Uh, the second and third round, they're investing in the company. Right. Now, you, you, we talked earlier about being sort of a voracious learner. I know you're that type of guy. We resonate on that on right. that same wavelength. Uh, and you love learning about, about new opportunities and trying to determine whether there's an opportunity there for either investment or growth or a great business concept. What's sort of your litmus test when you're looking, what you're, when you're analyzing an opportunity and out of that, what can the people who are listening to this take for themselves to better determine whether a good opportunity exists or not? Well, for me, um, I only invest in something I can understand. And I learned that the hard way. Uh, early on, I made a few investments because I was wowed by the opportunity. And the, the problem is sometimes, so, so let's say you have an emerging market. And um, the particular personal example I'm dealing with, it was in the world of the pharmaceutical industry. So I was listening to a couple of young entrepreneurs and one was a doctor and they were telling me about this world of new developing drugs in this area. And it sounded great. I had zero ability to really ascertain whether or not this was the team that was going to take us to the promised land. And there were some 15, 20 other companies out there all chasing the same you know, solution to this particular problem. So lesson one is, at least for me, don't invest in anything that you don't understand. For instance, NFTs, um, right now, I could be sitting across the table from someone who understood it perfectly. He could be my golden ticket. I'd have no way of knowing. So do your homework, invest in something that you can understand. Um, Thing two is uh, look at a track record. And I know entrepreneurs absolutely hate to hear this because they're saying, well, how can I build up a track record until somebody gives me a chance? It's exceedingly difficult. But, you know, I'm at the point in my life where I'm going to be looking for someone who has proven themselves um, in in something, whatever it is that they have had success in something. Um, So I look for the management team. If I can understand the market, Then I go and I look for the management team to see if these people seem to have the maturity and the discipline to execute a business plan. 
And then the, the, the third thing is, how are you capitalized? Do you have skin in the game? You know, where's your money coming from? Um, uh, you know, uh, are, are you raising enough? Um, and I, I've seen this a lot where people, is, when you look at it and they go, and you know, they're going to need $5 million of marketing and they've only raised a million. You might as well be throwing that million away. You've got to raise enough. And then fourth, exit strategy, um, a realistic exit strategy. If it's your goal to build this company and leave it to your children, I'm not your investor. You know, it, you, you absolutely, and if it's your goal to go public, I may not be your investor either because public markets are very, very strange. So understand uh, what your exit strategy is. So I need to know the market. I look at the management team, how they're capitalized, exit strategy. And those are the awesome. kind of in order. Yeah, I think that's really good advice. I uh, uh, Just a quick sidebar. We did an episode on NFT sort of clarifying the basics. I'll send it your way. And yeah. um, there's an article by Gary Vee as well uh, recently because he's getting ready on May 5th to release. We're recording this before May 5th for those who are listening. Uh, he's getting ready to release a, an NFT project of his own, Gary Vaynerchuk, uh, related to NFT. So he did a great article explaining... Uh, cryptocurrency, how NFTs play into that, and then the difference between custodial and non-custodial wallets, digital yeah. wallets, and all those things. I'll share that stuff with you. Might be uh, might be interesting for you. Yeah, my, my, my first awareness of NFTs is very recent. There's a gentleman here in South Carolina who just sold an art collection that is a digital art for, for, for like over $60 million. And I'm like, excuse me, what the... It's going on. <laughs> so I did a little bit of reading and I understand in theory, it's, right. it's basically establishing ownership of an exactly. original something. Okay. Exactly. So I get that, but um, we'll see. Well, it's very similar. Yeah. We won't get too far off topic here, but it's very similar to art in the real world, for lack of a better term, right? Yes, you can. The, the big thing, the big B in the bonnet, I think for most people is, I can just get this stuff online. I see the NFT scrolling through my Instagram. So what's the big deal? Well, it's the same as the Mona Lisa or a Picasso painting. I can go on Google right now and download Van Gogh's Starry right. Night, right? And I can print out a print on whatever size paper I want of that right from my printer or, or take a screenshot of it. But it's not the original. Not the original. It's not the real right. thing. And that's, that's what it is, right? It's ownership of something similar to that, just happens to be digital, and the scarcity of it. Now, the really cool thing, and this is one of the things we talked about in, in the NFT episode, as a lawyer and as an entrepreneur, looking at the future real-world use of NFTs, because they're associated with anything that has uniqueness and scarcity. That's basically it. So very okay. much like a certificate of authenticity, plus because it's built on the blockchain, which is basically a digital ledger, right. it tracks ownership. And you can build in royalties and all sorts of things, but we won't get into that yet. But the real world use cases that I see is in real estate, in correcting mm -hmm. issues with recorders of deeds, which have traditionally been totally bad at what they do. No, no offense to the recorders of deeds if they're listening. But... Um, but fixing that, just creating a verifiable, almost virtually unhackable system of record keeping that 
basically creates safeguards is very useful in a real world yeah. use case like that, for example, no, and other things. And, yeah, and it could definitely um, um, it, you know, be very destructive in the world of um, buying and selling not just real estate, but you know, stocks and bonds as well, if you don't have to go through, um, oh, no, I'm drawing blanks on the organization where, where, where you uh, record all stocks. Right. Um, but yes. Yeah, so I, I see really, really interesting. All right, now let's talk about, because you talked about you know, needing to be up to speed on the opportunities that come across your table. And part of that on, on your end as an investor is being able to, to listen really effectively. And, and right. active listening for those who, who've never heard the term before or, or who maybe haven't heard it in a while requires really, you know, kind of taking it in, putting it through all your mental filters, really actively listening requires active discussion as well, as you said, right? So I think as a part of developing really good listening skills and the value of listening as a whole, it's also a useful tool for those who are pitching investors to think about, you know, how can I make sure that I'm delivering the message very clearly? And that means they have to be actively listening as well, right? So let's let's talk about your best practices for developing good listening and and then as a subsequent um, part of that, developing good collaboration skills. Absolutely. Um, listening has become something that's been you know, on my radar now for the last 10 plus years. And if you had spoken to me 10 or 15 years ago and you had asked me whether or not I was a great communicator, I would say I'm an awesome communicator. I was a high school and college debate wizard, and I can stand in front of a room, give a great speech, and say I'm a great communicator. Um, but typically, if I was speaking to you, I would be 30 seconds to a minute ahead of you. I'd already be planning what I was going to say in response. And if you had stopped me and said, Paul, what did I just say? I'd have no idea what you had just said. I was always thinking about what I was going to say next which is selfish and it's kind of the way we're taught to communicate. So when I talk about listening, what I'm talking about is frankly, I'm giving a gift to you. You're telling me something. I'm gonna put you on hold every now and then. I'm gonna say, all right, all right, Tony, what I hear you saying is, and then this is a chance for you to slow down and listen and I will summarize back. You get to hear what I heard you say. Because people will go, go, Paul, are you a good communicator? I'm great. And they go, well, what do you think they actually heard? Most of us are lousy listeners. And so the only way to know if someone has actually heard you is to ask them, what would you hear me say? Now, it can be a little annoying at times. But if I sit there and I go, Tony, what I hear you saying is one of two things is going to happen. One, you're going to go, no, 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 that, that's, that's not what I meant. That's what you heard me clarify. And then gives you a chance to clarify. The other thing is oftentimes we're struggling with what to say. And so when somebody else can summarize it back, it kind of pulls out of you what's there. Um, and in the world of investing, you know, we have our pitches, our 30-second pitch, our two-minute pitch, our pitch. And if we don't, if, if, the, if the investor goes away and doesn't understand our pitch, we've wasted their time and hours. So I consider it a gift to the speaker to put them on hold and say, okay, what I hear you saying is this. And similarly, if I want to make sure I'm not misunderstood, 
you know, it, it can come, it can sound a little obnoxious at times, like you're a teacher, but you, but I like to say, okay, um, I'm saying a lot here. What, what, you know, what I'd like to know is, um, what are you hearing from me? And so at this point, what I would do, I'd say, all right, Tony, I've just said a lot. What do you think I'm trying to say about listening? And then you would, you'd summarize it back to me. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a, a valuable set of sort of a, a mental checklist for people who, and, and I admittedly, the podcast has helped me get better at it, quite frankly. And admittedly, same thing. We always think we're, we're better than we are. There, that's the frequent old adage, right? Is that if you ask the majority of drivers out there, they think they're better than the average right. driver, which means, you know, if the numbers are around 80%, somebody's <laughs> got to be wrong, right? Right. Um, it's like the people that never lose, they play poker. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, no, I, I always win. <laughs> right, right. Good point. So, um, yeah, that, that's, I find that really interesting. I, I think that's, that's a good set of skills and, and a checklist for people to use. And I like your practical approach. Just take a break and say, hey, let me make sure I understood you correctly. And for the uninitiated, it can take a little getting used to, but I think Absolutely. the ultimate outcome is a positive one, right? Where they end up respecting you more for it, not, not the other way around. Right. And the other benefit that I'm finding is sort of in the world of coaching. Now, I'm not a I'm not a professional coach. There are a lot of great professional coaches out there, but a, a lot of um, sort of the idea of the consultant was always the person who came in and took your watch and told you what time it was or a consultant was an ex a subject matter expert. And there is definitely room and need for consultants. There's no reason why you need to be the expert on everything. But I think a good coach is someone that will sit down with the entrepreneur with the following worldview. The entrepreneur or whoever you're speaking with, they're dealing with it. They have an issue or a question, challenge, problem. Odds are they know what the answer is, but they just need a sounding board. They need someone to talk out loud with because a lot of us entrepreneurs, small business, who are we going to go to? Because we're running everything. We don't have someone to talk to um, that, that, that that's going to be an unbiased outside view. So if you go to someone and your coach will sit there and just listen to you, ask you to say more about that. So what you're telling me is this and resist the temptation to tell them what they should do. Odds are that entrepreneur has got the answer inside or they'll leave with a much clearer view of what the challenge is. And it you know, might take a few sessions, but to, to offer that, that safe place, you know, for lack of a better word, for an entrepreneur to go and say, this is what I'm dealing with, entrepreneur odds aren't knows the answer. They just need that, that sounding board to, to think out, because otherwise you just think in your brain, everything just goes bouncing around. And it's, right, exactly. it's difficult to get out of that, that cycle uh, and ever really, okay, I made a decision. Yeah, that's great advice. So what's been the best part now of going from, you know, early on in your career out of law school, starting as a lawyer, and now you're in the entrepreneurial space, you're doing some investment, you're running some businesses, you've become an author. What's been your, your just your favorite part of all of this with respect to your own journey? Um, well, I'll speak for myself personally, because this might not be somebody else's. For me, it's uh, being creative. 
Um, I think that far too, all too often we think of creative people as people that are doing the visual arts. Uh, oh, that person's really creative. Um, I've met some of the most creative people I've ever met in the business world. If you have to figure out how to design really effective packaging and you're not allowed to spend more than $2 on the packaging and it's got to look good, that's a problem. You have to be creative to solve this. You have to be creative to come up with a, a new business model. You have to, you know, solving problems requires creativity. So, um, you know, I, I was actively involved in starting small businesses and running them. And frankly, after about 25 years of it, I just, I, I got to the point where I was burnt out in terms of starting and running them. So now I'm in a position where I get to come alongside other and, and witness what they're doing. And I was a consultant for a while. And I was basically an executive for hire, and I was raising some money and running some alternative income funds and things like that for a couple of small companies. But I, um, I found I found that being pigeonholed into this was my job and doing this, I got burned out, and 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 I just said this isn't fun. So now, um, by being an author, uh, I'm I'm an entrepreneur again. Not only do I have to dream up what the product is, you know, a work of fiction, I now have to learn how to market the book, how to self-publish, how to distribute, how to use social media. And I get to step back into the, I'll call it the traditional business world I came from in the role of an advisor, you know, and an investor. So for me, it's nurturing a desire to be creative. Um, that, that's where I'm finding my real joy. Super cool. And, and this may be a little bit of me myself literally asking you this, but hopefully the listeners also find this uh, interesting. One, how do you you personally keep your creative muscles, you know, kind of growing and, and staying uh, motivated, for lack of mm -hmm. a better term? And for you, you know, what's your process in terms of you've got the business side, the business hat that you wear, you've got the author hat now, now you've got different tasks sort of pulling at the different, not only your schedule, but at different parts of your brain at different times. How do you personally manage that as well? Um, well, um, I don't have any secrets to that. I'll, I try to do what everybody else does. And that is I try to um, be disciplined in my time and not be easily distracted. And it's difficult. Um, but I'd say, you know, um, continuing to read. Um, I, I, I like to read, you know, and, and I try to mix it up. You know, I, said, I try to mix it up and read what other people are reading. You know, some fiction, some nonfiction, some, you know, airplane reading, espionage books with some, try to go back and read some classics. So reading, that's thing one. Thing two is having conversations with people that are a different age than you are. Um, and so my wife and I have always tried to maintain friends that are our age, friends that are, you know, 10 years younger and friends that are 10 years older, having conversations. What are you doing? Uh, and so that that has helped. Beyond that, um, I find that my most creative time of day and productive is early morning. And so I, I get up, uh, you know, coffee, a little quiet time. Then I sit down at the desk. And this is and this is what I have to not do. I cannot go read a news site. I cannot go check email because that is a rabbit hole. I have to sit down. Yep. I have to sit down and I have to start writing. And I have to start writing. And even if it's just for a half an hour and the words get trashed, 
it gets me going. Um, I then try to reserve my afternoon for what I would call task, returning the emails, reconciling the checkbook, reading this draft memorandum, reviewing somebody's business plan. I say task because these are things that you've done, you do, and, and you know how to do them. I mean, you kind of know how long it's going to take. You've done this before. I go, okay, I can knock that out in 15 minutes. Right. So I consciously try to reserve my morning time for that time where I don't know what's going to happen. That's the creative time. Now, sometimes it doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. And it's frustrating. And then, um, you know, again, this isn't rocket science. Balance is critical. Get exercise, whatever it is you do. I'll go to the driving range for a half an hour and I'll be back there and all of a sudden I'm like, that's it. And all of a sudden you get an inspiration. I pull out my phone and I email myself before I forget it. And um, so it happens that way too. But that's, a, that's actually yeah. great advice. And I, I agree with you. I've found that it's in those minutes of I've given my brain, for lack of a better term, my consciousness, whatever you want to call it, my subconsciousness, whatever, I've, I've given it this problem to solve. And the more you bang your head against the wall, the harder it is to solve. Yep. And then you go off to golf course driving range, right. to the go gym, to run, the treadmill, whatever, it is, whatever it is. Yeah, whatever it is you do. And all of a sudden, when that's in the background on autopilot, boom, that's when the answer comes. It is. And, it is. And it's, it's crazy often, how many times it happens. Awesome. Yeah, it's and, awesome. And when I was younger, I could remember them. And then there, I went through a point where I'm like, damn it, I had this great idea what happened. And so now that's why I always have this with me, not so I'll be bothered by it, but so I can email myself, yeah, Smart, you know, what popped into my head. Yeah, super cool. All right. Yeah. So pauladaway.com is your website. We will drop that in the show notes. People should go check out your website. Your book is right there on the landing page when they get Correct. there. Check out Paul's books. It's been a huge pleasure. How else can people reach out to you if they're curious to get to know you or they want to throw a business idea. Yeah. Well, just uh, pauladaway.com. Go to the contact page. My email is right there. Um, I do check the email, but just not before 10 a.m. Um, <laughs> and uh, at least I try to. And that's how they can reach me. Awesome. Paul, thank you very much. Appreciate it. All right. Thank you, Tony. It was a pleasure. 